Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, David Aronovich here, bringing you something extra for the weekend. We had some good news last Saturday. Welcome to the British Podcast Awards 2022. Okay, next award, Best Interview. This podcast was a well-executed and compelling listen, and the interview didn't shy away from challenging its subject. So the winner is Stories of Our Times. Hooray! This is such a shock, but thank you so much. We are so grateful for the recognition. In that award-winning interview, Manveen went to meet the head of the military at the time, and given what happened afterwards, it's even more interesting now than when we first ran it. Just to set the scene, in March 2021, the government announced the most significant shake-up of defence since the Cold War the army would shrink to its smallest size since the 1700s, losing almost 10,000 soldiers. Instead, money would be put into new technology. Essentially, the military would be expected to do more with less. No one knew, though, what was to follow. Historically, whenever one of these um, reviews has been done, you tend to find the threats you predict are very rarely the ones you actually face in five years' time. Are you confident? Our rivals are trying to win without reverting to hot war. But hot war was exactly what would erupt less than a year after we recorded this interview as Putin invaded Ukraine, a situation that even risked escalation between nuclear powers. And just going back to, and I'm sorry to keep keep going on about it, but going back to the nuclear question. So today we're listening back to the British Podcast Awards Interview of the Year, which we first broadcast last March. Enjoy. The government has released its long-awaited defence review. Amid fears of cuts and the promise of global ambitions, I went to meet... General Nick Carter, the Chief of the Defence Staff, the professional head of the Armed Forces. In his office at the MOD, complete with some rather striking mementos. Tell me about that. What are we looking at? It's, I've never seen anything like it in an office before. No, so it's a, a gold-plated Heclecoq 9mm machine pistol. 
and it was given to me by my close friend General Bajwa, who's the chief of the army staff in Pakistan. A gold machine gun, a thank you gift from the head of the army in Pakistan. General Sir Nick Carter has been heavily involved in the region for years, having led NATO troops in the south of neighbouring Afghanistan more than a decade ago. And indeed, when it was given to me, the head of the intelligence organisation in Pakistan leant across and he said, you really are now the man with the golden gun. <laughs> anyway, it's had to be decommissioned because when it was given to me, it was in working order. And indeed, it came with 100 rounds of 9mm ammunition, which there have been times when I have been tempted to use it, it has to be said. <laughs> Useful in meetings. As the UK military navigates its way out of Afghanistan, 20 years after the start of the war, it's now looking ahead to the threats it faces in the future. Tell us about the threats that we as a country face. What are the ones that keep you awake at night, which are you most worried about? We now have assertive authoritarian rivals who are seeking to achieve their objectives without resorting to a hot war. And I think in so doing, what worries us, and I think also worries others who see regional powers behaving like this as well, is the potential for unwarranted escalation leading to miscalculation. And there are a lot of conflicts and potential conflict spots around the world at the moment, and any of those could very easily get exaggerated into something that becomes rather more than simply a regional conflict. And that's what would worry me, and indeed, to use your term, keep me awake. Russia has been portrayed as a threat to the UK and the West since the days of the Cold War. Vladimir Putin has always publicly played that down. Speaking in 2016, he said... Imaginary, mythical threats are being constantly presented, like the notorious Russian military threat. Really, it is a profitable activity, which allows new military budgets to be approved in respective countries. But in the early days of 2018... We have become accustomed to Russian jets encroaching on our airspace. The first sea lord told Sky News. This is a resurgence that has come very quickly. It, it is an intensifying resurgence of capability and scale. Then, in Salisbury. And so this appears to have been a state-sponsored assassination attempt after all. Statement, the Prime Minister. It is now clear that Mr Skripal and his daughter were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent of a type developed by Russia. And later that year... In a highly unusual move, the head of the army's gone public to demand more money for the defence budget, saying without it, Britain will be vulnerable to multiple threats from Russia. The UK government still considers Russia a threat. Here's Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab speaking last year. We've got uh, a long period recognising the enduring and significant threat posed by Russia to the UK, including in relation to cyber. This week, the Times reported that Russia was even jamming signals at an RAF base in Cyprus in an act of electronic warfare. But Russia is not the only country being viewed with suspicion. There is no question that China will pose a great challenge for an open society such as ours. Name names. Which countries in particular? Is this Russia? Is it China too? Russia and China are who we would normally describe as assertive authoritarian rivals. I'm always careful about the language because I judge Russia to be the acute threat and I would regard China as being more of a chronic challenge. Uh, it doesn't need to be a threat. And what is it that you're most worried about 
them doing? You know, it, it's quite clear that nobody at the moment particularly wants to go to war. What is the, the fear of, of, in terms of their behaviour? I think we've seen great powers using fait accompli strategies to achieve their objectives. We've seen that particularly, of course, with Crimea and Ukraine, as far as Russia is concerned. And I think we've seen quite a lot of that happening in the Pacific as well. And I think our worry would be that these sorts of activities lead to us being bowled a bit like a frog. The old analogy of the frog when it's thrown into cold water and boiled up slowly, it'll probably stick, but it certainly won't if it jumps into boiling water. So where are we on that boiling process <laughs> at the moment? Well, I think there are a number of parts of the world where there is this sense that perhaps we've created vacuums in the past and what we see are potential rivals achieving their objectives and perhaps filling the spaces that we've perhaps left unfilled. And for people who don't watch defence on a daily basis, I mean, would you describe us as being at war already? I mean, I wouldn't use the term war. I mean, I think we are in a form of competition. And sometimes if you talk about the new uh, domains of space and cyber, perhaps touching on conflict. But no, people don't want to go to war, which is tremendous. But of course, what it also means is that you need to find other ways of prevailing in this constant competition. And I think a lot of people have styled this as being the grey zone because it's a, a blurring of the distinctions between peace and war. And a lot of the traditional distinctions that were in place during the Cold War and while I was growing up, like the distinctions between your foreign policy and your home policy, like the distinctions between virtual and reality and between state and non-state, are blurring. And you see that particularly with some of our authoritarian rivals who are using organisations like the Wagner Group to achieve their ends. So mercenaries. But on a deniable and a plausibly deniable basis. So that's Russia carrying out effectively its foreign policy in countries, but hiding behind what looks like a band of mercenaries to do it. Indeed. And we see that in Africa and we see that in parts of the Middle East as well. And it is exactly that. And we've certainly seen a good deal of it in Syria. But it's not just Russia who are doing this. There are other countries probably can see the ways to, to use things that are technically deniable. And for people who are unfamiliar with the term grey zone, I mean, what exactly does it mean? Where are you seeing these people acting? Is it just mercenaries or what sort of behaviours are you seeing that alarm you? Well, I think it's, it's also in cyber and in space. I mean, certainly in space, you see quite a lot of activity, which is certainly not friendly. You see people putting what does up... What that mean? Well, you see anti-satellite type tests going on. You see other countries manoeuvring their satellites to become close proximity to your own satellites. So there's a, there's a competition which can easily end up with there being some irresponsible activity, which could easily lead to a mess in space. So you see it happening there. You obviously see it in cyber and people are forever talking about the nature of the, the sort of offensive cyber attacks that occur on different countries and on different parts of different institutions. And then, of course, you also see it in terms of misinformation and disinformation. So what has occurred is that the character of conflict has evolved significantly over the last 10 years, predominantly because of the pervasiveness of information and the rapid pace of technological change. And that's given those who would wish to make mischief the new tools, tactics and techniques with which to do it. So how should the military operate in the grey zone? How do you counter threats from countries who are constantly targeting Britain, but without officially being at war? This marks the most significant shift in military thinking in generations. Clausewitz, the Prussian general who's considered the father of modern warfare and the most quoted source in defence, described war as an extension of policy by other means. So when the politics fails, 
war begins. But now, the modern military would be operating against hostile countries long before war was declared, whilst the politics continued. You know, the military is just one of the instruments of national power and it needs to be integrated alongside the other instruments of statecraft or national power in order to be effective, which perhaps goes back to your classifies. And the fact of the matter is, it's about ideology, it's about diplomacy, it's about development aid, it's about economics. So if we are to be effective in the world I've described, it'll be the country that is best able to integrate all of those different instruments of statecraft to the best effect that will be successful. Another battlefield that's fiercely contested now is information, and the British military have already entered the fray with 77 Brigade, which specialises in information operations and counter-disinformation. Another area for growth for the military is cyber, an important platform for competing in the grey zone. Well, we're certainly investing in cyber because the National Cyber Force will have military people in it as well as civilians. It'll be a a joint force in that sense. But in terms of what 77 Brigade do, we definitely believe that the information domain, if you like, is an area that we need to be in a position to be able to act proactively and indeed to defend ourselves. And 77 Brigade was created five or six years ago in order to be able to be employed in environments like Afghanistan, where they were able to identify the information environment and then to work out how you could achieve your message being transmitted, principally by social media or the internet as a mechanism, to get to the population that mattered. And we've used that sort of capability a lot in the fight against Daesh or ISIS in Syria and Iraq. And indeed, before the Iraqi forces engaged in their acts to free Mosul from ISIS significant amount of effort went into the information operation via the internet to connect to the local population in Mosul to give them a sense of security that what was coming would be governance that could perhaps be more supportive than the governance that they had at the time. Historically, whenever one of these um, reviews has been done, you tend to find the threats you predict uh, are very rarely the ones you actually face in five years' time. Are you confident that you've got the kit and enough people to be able to cope with whatever's coming. One of the things that makes me confident about this review, perhaps more than others that I've lived with, is for the first time in my career, I think we have the ENDS, as in the integrated review that the Prime Minister announced last Tuesday. We have the ways, as in a new way of operating, but we've also got the means now. And us military people like to talk about strategy being about ends, ways and means. And I think for the first time that I can remember, the ends, the ways and the means are balanced over the course of the next 10 years. Now, of course, politics is inherently unstable, but we have at the moment got a defence programme that, unlike usual defence programmes, which has a sort of tsunami So I am reasonably confident that we're in a better place than we once were. But to the essence of your question, ultimately everything comes down to adaptability. There is always a temptation, isn't there, for the military to fight the last war. The trick, though, is to try and make sure that your interpretation of the future is not so widely off the mark that you aren't able to adapt once you know what the character of that conflict is going to be like. It's really interesting that you say you've got the the ways and the means, because one of your predecessors, Lord Richards, has actually criticised the means. He says the fact that the army is shrinking by 10,000 
means that it's more likely to get a country like Russia thinking it might not be a bad time to, to launch a war. I don't know if you go that far. But do you agree with him that having a smaller army is inherently dangerous? Not necessarily. I and mean, I think I would challenge him to tell me what threats are emerging over the course of the next 10 years that will need an army that's larger than 72,500. Because at the end of the day, our army is going to warfight in the NATO alliance with other allies. And on that basis, I would judge that a very well-prepared army, which is well-trained and properly equipped, which can field the warfighting division that NATO requires of us, is what NATO needs. And that's the size of army that is right and proper. And of course, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, of course, when Lord Richards was CDS, that was the time when the army had the largest shrinkage in all time. You're not the only one cutting. But looking at that in particular, he also points out that with an army that size, we couldn't do the Falklands again, we couldn't do Iraq and Afghanistan. What do you make of that? So I would be reasonably confident that we're quite well capable of doing something like the Falklands again. That was one of the reasons why we acquired aircraft carriers. And indeed, the aircraft carrier with the F-35, once it's properly in service, would be in many ways a much more capable capability, if I can use that term, than what we had when we did it in 1982. So I would question him about that. And in terms of the land component that would need to accompany that, we didn't deploy that many people to the Falklands when we did it. If, we, if I recall, it was a couple of brigades. So I'm not sure I would agree with him on that. And in terms of the, the Iraq campaign of 2003, you know, we fielded a, a land component of around 40,000, of which about six, 7,000 were reservists. And I'm in no doubt that we can still field a similar formation to the one that we fielded then. But the more important thing that we should be judged by is what NATO expects of us. And NATO asks us to provide, through its NATO Readiness Initiative, three high-ready brigades. And the answer is that we will be able to meet the standards that NATO requires of us during the course of this decade. How does NATO feel about the army being cut? You know, we've already heard from, I think, Leon Panetta, former defence secretary, has, has been out saying he thought it was unfortunate. I mean, will it make us more unpopular with the Americans? I don't think so. Not judging through the conversations I have with my US opposite number and indeed many of the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But also we are investing significantly in cyber, in nuclear, in the maritime domain, in the air domain, and also over time in the space domain. So as a full spectrum contributor to NATO, that is exactly what the Americans would require of us. And indeed, we'll welcome the fact that we are spending more uh, as a percentage of GDP than any other country other than themselves. Coming up, what might wars of the future look like? We're listening back to our award-winning interview from March last year with General Sir Nick Carter. At this point, the conversation turned to nuclear deterrence. In October 1952, 
one of the biggest technological changes to Britain's defences started with an explosion off the coast of Western Australia. With that test, Britain became a nuclear power. But over the coming decades, the world became increasingly worried about the threat of mutually assured destruction. The treaty is ready to be proclaimed in force between the United States of America and the 46 other states that have deposited their instruments of ratification. So in 1970, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty came into force. Uh, this is indeed an historic occasion. I only hope that this was the first milestone on a road which led to reducing the danger of nuclear war. And with that, the UK committed to gradual nuclear disarmament under international law. We are one of the handful specifically recognised by the NPT uh, to possess such dreadful weapons. But the government's new integrated review lifts the cap on the number of nuclear warheads that the UK can hold. And it lifts a ban on using Britain's nuclear weapons against a non-nuclear state if the threat of chemical or biological weapons or emerging technologies makes it necessary. It's a huge change. Elsewhere, other nuclear treaties have been faltering too. It bans ground-launched medium-range missiles. Now President Trump wants to pull out. We're not going to let them violate a nuclear agreement and go out and do weapons, and we're not allowed to. Under President Trump, the US withdrew from the INF, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. America said Russia had broken the agreement banning smaller tactical nuclear weapons. Donald Trump had intended to renegotiate another treaty, START, but President Biden extended it, just in the nick of time, on taking office. But it wasn't just our nuclear capability that was promised a boost in the integrated review. And in terms of the sort of technology that they'll be using, I mean, there was a lot made in the integrated review about quantum computing. How does that fit into defence? It depends what you think quantum computing is going to do and, and, and what it means. I mean, a lot of people will tell you that quantum computing could very easily make the oceans transparent. Well, that might mean that you're devising the future submarine to enter service in 40 years' time. You could discover that it's no longer able to discreetly slide around in opaque water. So I think it's, it's ah. those sorts of possibilities that greater brains than mine need to get their minds around. What I would say, though, is that I do think it means we need to return to a former era of experimentation. I mean, what I'm describing is what our forefathers went through when they had to move from sail to steam. The idea that you might end up with technology which allows the oceans to be transparent and submarines to be seen makes it even more surprising that the government and the integrated review has decided to increase the number of nuclear warheads, given that our nuclear warheads are submarine-based. How does that make sense? I'm, I'm speculating that yeah. the oceans may become transparent. What I'm saying is it's technologies like quantum computing that could make that happen. But presumably we're not the happen. only country looking into technology like that. No, of course not. Very much not. I mean, you know, we, we all well know that the United States and China and our European allies are doing this all the time, and you'd expect them to. Given that that's happening, does it make sense for us to be investing in more nuclear warheads now? I'm not sure that that's necessarily that relevant to this particular part of the conversation. On that particular subject, it's not really for me to comment on what's been said about the, the nuclear piece of it. What I think is interesting to speculate on is 
what your subsurface warfare capability might look like. And my bet is, is that you'll be going for a lot of smaller capabilities, more dispensable capabilities, you know, which are able to create mass and dispersion in much the same way as we'll have in the other domains as well. And that may well overcome the extent to which quantum computing could make the oceans transparent. And just going back to, and I'm sorry to keep, to keep going on about it, but going back to the nuclear question, were you surprised by the decision to increase the number of warheads and the idea of changing the metric on which they might be used, deciding they might be used in response to things other than nuclear attack? Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to comment on what has been said about the quantity of warheads or all those sorts of things. What I would say in answer to the second part of your question, though, is that it is absolutely necessary that we have a debate about modern deterrence in the context of missiles. Because what our assertive authoritarian rivals have done is to invest significantly in missile technology, particularly conventional missile technology, which have now got much longer ranges and are much more effective than they once were. And you could see how that would be really quite destabilising, particularly when you consider that New Start was saved at the last gasp in February by the Biden administration. But the other arms control agreements that, you know, we grew up with are no longer in existence, particularly INF. And I think there's a big conversation to be had about what deterrence looks like in the context of a world which is populated with many more missiles than it once was. But are we becoming part of the problem? I think the British government's position on this has always been very sound. You know, we are absolutely there for non-proliferation and that's the right place to be. It does seem to go against the spirit of the agreements that we've signed up to, and we're still trying to encourage other people to follow. These are political judgments, which me, as the head of the armed forces, is not necessarily going to be involved in. As the head of the armed forces, do you ever make the argument that that money would be better spent on conventional forces than on a nuclear deterrent? I mean, fortunately for me, we have not yet been so bankrupt that I have to argue that we need to invest more in conventional weaponry than nuclear weaponry. The plain fact is that deterrence is a mix of a range of different capabilities. And the trick is how you integrate all of them to achieve that deterrence effect. A lot of the integrated review also looks at our place in the world now, you know, post-Brexit, global Britain, and how we operate and, and the idea of pivoting towards the Asia-Pacific. Defence seems to be sort of very much part of that. How does that change our alliances in the brave new world? You know, this century is going to be the Asian century. It's going to be about the Indo-Pacific. That's where the population growth will be and that's where the economic growth will be. So it's entirely logical uh, that a country like ours with global aspirations, which is very much dependent upon trade, to be fundamentally tilting in that direction. From a defence perspective and a security perspective, though, what's also very clear is that we assure our security through Europe and through the Euro-Atlantic area. So I think it's a question of emphasis. We're certainly not turning away from the Euro-Atlantic area. Have those partnerships been challenged by Brexit? I mean, you know, just over the weekend, we had Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, talking about how vaccinations had become a hot issue with European partners. Has all of that been a challenge for defence and defence relationships? I mean, I, I can only talk about military to military relationships. And no, it's completely unbroken. Um, I've not noticed a break in stride since Brexit occurred in terms of my European partners. We're still the best of friends and we still work very closely together to achieve our military objectives. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, 
General Sir Nick Carter. The producers today were James Shield and Edward Drummond, and sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.